The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 97. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. Workplace violence and workplace threats. Workplace safety and safety plans. What is your organization doing about this stuff? It seems as if the issue, whether it's involving active shooters, domestic violence spilling into the workplace, whether it involves office coworkers or customers or clients, we have certainly been seeing and reading much more about these issues than I think we ever have. Like other employment issues we talk about on the podcast, though, before you implement lawful and effective policies and protocols for your work environment, it is critical to start the process by planning and giving critical thought to what those policies should be. Today, I am joined by a very special guest to talk about the things that your organization might start planning and might start thinking about. Dan Pascal is the Executive Vice President of Margolis Healy, a professional service firm, which also happens to be an affiliate of Cozen O'Connor, that specializes in safety, security, emergency preparedness, and regulatory compliance. Dan, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the time to be here. Absolutely. This is such a hot topic now, such an important topic. I know everyone's focused on COVID-19 and all of the changing developments uh, every day, let alone every minute. Um, but this issue of workplace violence and threat assessment and all of that uh, is real important. So I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us. Why don't we start um, with a little bit of background um, I, I know and I've said that uh, Margulis Healy is an affiliate for the last few years of Cozen O'Connor. Why don't you give us a little bit of a sense of the nature of Margulis Healy's business and your particular practice? You, you bet. So we're a professional security consulting firm, and we really specialize in a number of practice areas such as physical security, emergency management, business continuity, active threat training, and then looking at public safety or security or even police staffing and regulatory compliance for all kinds of communities, campuses, and workplaces. Our, our goal is pretty simple, Mike. We try to provide innovative, progressive thought leadership and world-class consulting services to our clients by conducting objective assessments and giving reasonable, customized, cost-effective solutions to emerging challenges in workplace safety and security. And in addition to my administrative duties as the executive vice president here, I continue to oversee our physical security and emergency management practice areas. Those are the things that are most deeply in my background as a practitioner for the previous 20 years before joining the firm. When you just gave a list of the things that Margulis Healy does, and I recognize it was sort of a general list, um, you mentioned business continuity. And a lot of people 
uh, have heard that term, but I think there are also a lot of people who don't exactly know what that is. Is that succession planning? Is that something else? What, is, what do you mean when you say business continuity? Yeah, that, that's a great question. When I talk about business continuity, I want all of our listeners to understand what they need to do to keep their core functions operating. In other words, how do we keep our business moving? Whether you're in education, whether you're in banking or transportation, your responsibility is to keep your business going, your customers filled, and your employees working. So what do we have to do to get that to happen? That's where I like our organizations to focus time. And we spend a great deal of time making those plans. Terrific. Uh, we all see the news, obviously, and, and regardless of what side of the gun control argument you're on, and that's for a different time and place, there has certainly been a rise, I think we can all agree, in workplace gun violence over the past several years. How has that increase impacted your practice and the challenges that employers have been facing? Yes. You know, I'm actually going to go one step maybe a little further, Mike, and beyond the issue of just simply gun violence. I want to focus on workplace violence in general, right? So interesting here, according to the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, workplace violence falls into four broad bucketed categories, and probably all of your listeners can relate to at least one of them, if not all of them. That's criminal intent, customer client, worker on worker, and then uh, interpersonal relationship, domestic situations, interpartner violence, those situations. And not surprisingly, the majority of those incidents are targeted toward women. About 70% of those cases and assaults uh, are, are targeted towards women in the workplace. Domestic bucket, you mean? The in the domestic bucket, that's bucket. correct. Mm -hmm. So when that spills into the workplace, more than 70% of the time, that's affecting our female employees. So something that's really important um, for us to take note of. Certain professions, though, Healthcare workers, for example, nearly 75% of workplace assaults that take place a year, I'll repeat that, 75% take place at healthcare facilities and providers, right? Another profession that's close to me, teachers, nearly 40% of our teachers have reported being the victim of an assault in the workplace in school, either by students or fellow coworkers or parents. But interestingly enough, the numbers are staggeringly low because if you look at the statistics from either the CDC or OSHA, you'll see that they truly believe there is an amazing underreporting of workplace violence and assaults. So even though those numbers are incredible, they're much underreported. But there's another number that should concern all of us and all of your listeners. And that is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates there's approximately 1.5 million cases of workplace violence per year and that the workplace losses are in excess of $100 billion annually based on workplace interruption from violence, uh, even employee-on-employee -employee violence. So there's not only that moral and ethical and professional responsibility we feel as employers to protect our employees and provide a reasonably safe workplace, but there's sure an interest in getting back to work and doing what we're supposed to do. So I think it's really important that we look at how we are addressing these issues, where we have vulnerabilities, and give reasonable solutions through policy, training, and in some cases, physical layout of facilities for those of us, and I know we're, we're going to get into this a little bit later, um, who are going back to offices, remaining in offices, or in manufacturing retail establishments, and we have to be face-to-face -face with our customer and clients versus those of us working at home. So it's really forced us, Mike, to answer your question about impact in our business. 
really to be much more intentional about addressing those threats from the insider threats and kind of seeing around corners to help those clients understand where they need to be making improvements. And I do want to ask you uh, some questions, of course, about workplace safety plans and uh, some of the things that organizations should be thinking about, uh, particularly with the physical workplace. Um, before I get there, uh, I guess as inevitable as it was, I want to bring COVID-19 into this and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, where we have seen a lot more remote work and we've seen perhaps hybrid work and who knows uh, how long any of that is going to continue. But in that context of hybrid and remote work, a lot has been discussed about cybersecurity when people are talking about security-related issues for companies. What implications are there of having remote or hybrid work on physical safety and security issues that you've been seeing? Yeah, so you're 100% uh, correct again, Mike. Uh, many companies, government agencies, and folks that we work with in healthcare and other industries have rightly focus their energy and resources towards cybersecurity and mitigation of potential threats to their networks, intellectual property, and business continuity efforts. And that made sense to me. It made sense to most of my colleagues in the security industry. This fascination with Zoom and WebEx and Microsoft Teams, the growth that we've seen in the past 18 months, besides the fact that you and I may not have been early investors and missed the boat on that. Please, right? <laughs> I'm kicking myself. That and, and, and Dogecoin next, but we, we missed the boat on those things. However, the explosion has been like no other change in the work environment. So it made sense that we concentrate a lot of efforts there. On the backside of that, though, as we started to see a little bit of a new world order, a little more normalcy to how we're going to get back to work, we really started to think about how are we going to look at those concerns around our physical environment and, and what does that mean? And so, um, you know, we still don't know what we don't know, to, to quote a certain individual, right, about remote and hybrid workforces. You know, and I, I really begs the question, and you and I had a conversation offline last week where myself and other security colleagues have been posing the question to our CEOs and HR professionals, which is, and general counsel, which is where does the employer's responsibility to provide a reasonable and secure work environment begin and end in this remote world. You know, is it, is it as easy as we give you a laptop, we give you a cell phone saying, hey, you're safe, you're on your own. Um, I, I don't think most employers look at it that way and I kind of hope they're not looking at it that way, but it is a new world order. We've sort of said, okay, what should I do? What is my responsibility? Um, you think about it, we rarely know the details of our employees' lives. And in many cases, we, we're actually encouraged not to ask, right? And not it's less obvious. I mean, it's less obvious. It's not that they're sitting in your office space, but they're doing your work in their living room or in their bedroom. That, that's correct. And, and so we've taken it for granted. We started looking at, hey, great, we're going to have some operational cost savings. We're going to reduce the size of our, our physical brick and mortar. We can sell off some assets. This is great. Only what we didn't do was say, well, what are those employees' living situations? What are their domestic issues, right? By creating a remote work environment, might we be taking away that employee's safe space for the day? Might it be that they're exposed to an unhealthy or um, environmentally unfriendly workspace at their home where they don't typically spend eight to nine hours uh, during the day, they spend that at your office. 
two hours. And if you're in New York City, of course, you know, add in a couple of hours each way to get to and from your apartment. Right. So you spend a lot of time away from that home. But now we're asking you to be there and exposed to a, a lot of different conditions that we just don't know about. So the idea of protecting our employees and, and being around to comfort reduce the opportunity for harassing behaviors, one of which I think is a big deal is when you think about coworkers. So, for example, break room conversations right now you know, they, they might be done in a way where someone says, well, I, I feel pretty safe, um, right? Because uh, I, I'm here in the break room, there's a lot of people around, so employees don't say anything. But when you get into that one-on-one -on -one environment using any one of these platforms, it now provides short of an employee recording a session, which may violate company policy or state statute, it now gets into an environment where it's one-on-one, -on -one, there aren't other people around, and the opportunity for harassment begins, and certainly um, other conditions that we, we don't necessarily want to talk about today. And so uh, there's some other things that, from a security perspective, I think we should focus on as well. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, if you're a company developing protocols or at least recommended practices for your employees, right, to, to follow, and that's saying uh, if you're having a video chat with a colleague or perhaps a vendor, and you decide uh, you're going to locate yourself in the basement or in the living room, as you as you point out, and your camera's pointing at that expensive, you know, name that thing in your house. If I if I tilted mine, uh, uh, and I'm on Zoom for those of you on the podcast who can't see with Mike, if I tilted my camera uh, a quarter of an inch, you'd see my hover helmet of the Miami Dolphins, um, which is a, a prized possession of mine. There, I'm giving you all a little hint. Well, we do that in our home all the time because we're now in, in this place. And of course, at the end of the call, I'm going to tell Mike where I'm going on vacation next week and taking my family. And in about two minutes, he or anyone else listening in can find my home address. Um, it's not difficult to do, right? So now he knows my home address. He knows the valuable possession I have because he's watched it on video. And he knows exactly when me and my family will be away. That creates in and of itself a security vulnerability much different than the office because most of us weren't worried about some sort of criminal or thief breaking into the office, getting past security and stealing our desk chair. Or if right? you did, you viewed it as the company's problem because it's their office as opposed to, you know, entering into your own personal home space. That's right. But now it's your home. It's your family, right? So these are different times, not necessarily scary per se, but they're different. And we need to be as creative in regards to security and making sure our employees are physically safe as we are about driving the bottom line. And I'd suggest to you that any CEO, any general counsel, um, or certainly any HR um, representative would say, those are not mutually exclusive things, right? We certainly drive our bottom line and drive our core business by having and providing safe and reasonable and healthy work environments for our employees. That's great. So let's get into a little bit of specifics here when we're talking about planning and what companies should be thinking about. From a general perspective, uh, and then we can get more into the weeds, I guess, what should employers and businesses consider doing now when it comes to developing the types of workplace safety plans that you were referencing before? Yeah, so while there's a lot of things, and I, I tried to think about how we would really want to concentrate our efforts. First, you have to determine what you are and what you will be. And by that, it ties into your last question. Are we a remote company? Are we a hybrid company? Are we a facilities-based company? I know what we were maybe pre-COVID. 
I know what we've been through this pandemic. And as we come out of it into the new world order, what will we be? So then when you do that, each one of those categories, you have to identify the most appropriate plan. So if you're hybrid and you're going to have folks at one location or perhaps 30 manufacturing locations with a distributed employee base throughout the country or perhaps internationally, as I, I mentioned to you offline, my wife's company is an international company. They have folks working at home in different countries and they have about 20 plants here in the United States with employees physically working in the plants. You must address each one of those situations uniquely to understand those challenges. And because we've become a little bit low um, right now, feeling like we're feeling good, the pandemic is, is slowing down, the numbers are decreasing rapidly, we're seeing a pickup in the economy, pickup in uh, business overall, decrease in unemployment, um, we're starting to feel good. We don't want to get lulled into that false sense of security. So we have to analyze what each one of those situations will be. Uh, in some cases, what we've really find is that the facilities themselves have to make layout changes or they have made layout changes either for budget purposes or just to accommodate the amount of staff that are there now. Um, perhaps you reduce the number of facility-based employees by 30, 40, 50% even. So you have to consider what's the impact to my facility's security? Can my employees still communicate effectively in an emergency? Are the security measures such as the facility access, visitor management, are they still effective in this environment or do they need to change? Um, questions about emergencies, you know, who's in charge during an emergency? Many companies used to default to the highest person on the organizational chart for that. Well, in many cases, those folks may not be working in the office anymore, right? We now have an R&D squad who's here, but the executives aren't here. So who have we put in charge of emergency response? the responsibility to communicate outward that something is happening. And if we had trained people before, are they still the people that are in our office? So we really have to focus there. And I would say there's absolutely differences in our industries that are, that are obviously apparent to us all. If you're a service industry with a large number of outward facing employees, whether it be retail, banking, food service, or you're an Uber driver, uh, you know, you're going to be much different than your accounting office is going to be. And no offense to any accountants who are on here, by the way, you have exciting offices too, right? Um, but those are going to be much different the way I deal with them. So I think right now we continue to be um, looking at um, how we have uh, the number of people, how difficult it is to prepare for those people, what they have to deal with. So essentially, Mike, as the business is changing, perhaps it's, it's for the better, of course, but don't forget to include the critical concerns for employees. Just don't let it get out of sight, out of mind mentality. My folks are at home. I'm not seeing them come through the door every day. I don't have to worry about fire drills. I don't have to worry about an active shooter plan anymore. Everything is fine. That is absolutely the wrong position to take right now, but it's easy to do with a number of competing priorities. Yeah, and there's no question. I mean, one of the big takeaways from what you just said, I think, is that there's not really a one-size-fits-all here's a safety plan template that everybody can just download and, and let's use it. It really might differ by industry, as you pointed out, and also even in the same industry, one company has different interests and a different way of doing its business uh, that might impact the kind of safety plan you're going to have. You know, you, you touched on some of the issues to be addressed in a workplace safety plan. Um, what specifically are other issues that uh, you might look to put into an organization safety plan? And how do you and your organization go about actually 
creating the safety plan itself with the organization? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack that in that question. I know, so, I know. <laughs> a lot, I lot, right? I could have broken it up, I know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to try to give it in a way that folks can at least hear what we're talking about and get those general concepts. So the first and foremost is you have to have an organizational policy that defines unacceptable behavior and workplace violence and what it is. Sadly, in much of the work that we do, we still see organizations who have addressed this generically with one or two sentences in a long human resources or onboarding process, right? These, these policies need to be distinct and they need to be well spelled out and they need to be signed off on by your employees. And not only that, you have to provide that annual update for them at a minimum. I mean, for me, I'm biased as a security consultant. You could do it every day. That might be overkill, but at least annually, right? So you have to do that. The, the second is you also have to provide a reasonable level of training on the policy and give guidance to your employees because hope is not a strategy and luck is not a plan. You can't simply say we put something on paper and therefore my employees are aware of it and they're all following it. That's sort of Pollyanna, right? That's, that's really not going to work for us. So you have to do that and you must promote the communication and reporting capabilities. Whether you use an online form, an app, email, a, a box outside of HR, I, I say use them all. Make sure everyone is aware of them. Employees must be able to report behaviors free from fear, intimidation, or retaliation within the organization. That was a lot of word alliteration um, there. <laughs> I had to break that apart. Retaliation, intimidation, right? Um, we, it's really important that we set that environment right. Now, I, I guess uh, I, I guess one of the next steps, there's probably three parts here, uh, but I would say you have to investigate all complaints, no matter how seemingly small or maybe inconsequential they might be. Every complaint has to be investigated. And every person who reports an incident has to be treated dignity, respect, and equality. It's important that the organization puts that into their policy, right? Because we've heard too many times, and I'm sure in your practice, you've heard accusations, if not just actual incidents where we discounted what one employee said because of their background, their history, something that's happened previously in their work, and that's wrong. If they've made a complaint, it may be legitimate. It should be investigated no matter who they are. Um, so to do that, you should identify a workplace violence team. Um, again, not something that's going to take up full-time position. This is an as-needed as type of position and all other duty as assigned. Is this just not management? Only. Is this just management folks? Are you having a combination of management uh, employees and non-supervisory employees? Yes, I really like the combination of, of management with non-supervisory employees as well. You, you've got to get that jury of your peers, right? So we understand who's doing what. Folks on the floor of a manufacturing site understand what the other what the pressures of their coworkers are a lot differently than an executive in the organization or perhaps an administrator who works three, four buildings and three, four cities over, right? So getting that perspective is really important. So definitely like to have the idea of a, of a synergized team. Always take corrective actions immediately. You can't stress enough. This is not the time to have long drawn out investigations that last weeks or months to come but no conclusion. If in fact there's a report of harassment, workplace violence, and there is a predictor that something may happen, you have to take action immediately. 
Um, even if that's the wrong action, hey, we're going to ask the employee to go home for the day, for two days, three days, pay them, right? Remove that threat from the current workplace. Even if it's you decide, I'll give the employee who feels threatened off and I'll do it in a way that allows them to, to keep their professional um, profile private. Um, but I'm going to do that. Even if we pay them again for the day, we don't charge lost time. You can figure that out later. Don't say, well, we're going to have about six or seven more meetings to discuss this. Take action, right? Follow up, have um, those post-event trauma services available to infected employees, whether you have a threat of violence or actual violence occur, make sure that you're out where right? you immediately acknowledge it and provide those post-traumatic stress services. So important to folks. Whether you have an EAP program and you rely on that, that may or may not be sufficient. If it's a one individual call-in number, you may consider bring in an outside resource, make them available for a week, two weeks, three weeks, depending on the severity of the incident that you've suffered. That's what your employees might need. I'll tell you, Mike, one of our clients, and I don't want to relive the incident, who unfortunately went through a, a, a horrible school shooting uh, with a number of deaths literally two years later, still has on-campus grief counselors available. Wow. Um, they're there every day. They consume a part of the campus, and that is allowed for teachers, faculty, staff, even former students to come back and have those conversations. So when you have workplace violence, you do it. And lastly, review all of your incidents. Make any changes to your policy as needed. Don't sit on them. When you have an event, obviously, it can be a major event, a minor event, doesn't matter review what occurred, see if there were any holes in your policy, your plan wasn't executed properly. And if there were, go ahead and fix them and then recommunicate that. Very important. Lessons learned and then implementation. And so if an organization uh, comes to you, comes to Margulis Healy and, and says, look, I want to, I'm thinking about creating a safety plan. I want to do a threat assessment. I want to get an outsider's view as to how well prepared we are from a physical standpoint, uh, in addition to our policies. And I know, again, as we've talked about, everything is different. There's no generic answer to that. But what are the, some of the things that you're doing as a first step uh, to address the organization's request for a threat assessment, a safety plan? What are some of the things that you're doing with that organization right at the front? Yeah, we, we have a very standardized approach to a very complex rubric of, of, of safety and security, but it really deals with what we call concentric circles of protection. So that's bringing together the organization's policies, the physical security measures, and the facilities themselves if they have them, their response capability, whether that's internal, they have building captains in a high rise, they have a first responder team, their own security, or perhaps mutual aid through law enforcement. And then again, how they're using technology. So technology is so important, whether it's physical security measures, cameras, locks, keys, alarm systems, or whether it's using information security and AI, right? How are we utilizing these biometric screening? Again, very specific depending on the industry that we are helping, but we want to look at all of that. And then we speak to our stakeholders, understand who you are, what's the DNA of your organization and who you aspire to be so that we can understand here's what you're doing, here's where you want to be, and is there some gap? In fact, sometimes it's a gap, Mike, sometimes it's a chasm. So yeah. we've, got to, we've got to deal with that in different ways. And then we can sit down and really construct what your program should look like, what the people should be involved, the training that's necessary for it, and how to implement it successfully. 
And so from a first part standpoint, um, will you actually go into the site, go into the organization site and do an assessment that way, whether covertly or not? We sure do. And those are things that we work on with our clients. We generally come in uh, in a way that's not covert, but we have certain clients in certain industries that need us to do what we might call as penetration testing, um, which is us not uh, addressing who we are and seeing if we can either socially engineer our way into a building or a facility um, or in some cases, to be honest, Mike, we can just walk through an open door or piggyback in with the next employee. There's no better way of, of assessing uh, the safety or the lack thereof than you being able to, I guess, breach whatever security may be in place. It is, it is unfortunate that we still have that parameter. And in a way, I'm encouraged because usually it's because people are good people. They see you coming. They certainly want to open the door for you. They don't want to let it slam in your face. Unfortunately, we live in a world in certain industries in particular where you just can't do that. If I'm not wearing the appropriate credentials, identification, you know, it's not confrontational to stop and say, can I help you? I don't recognize you, you know, and I'm a visitor. Oh, great. You have to go over and see the front desk and sign in and you'll get your pass. It takes two seconds. No question. And, and that sort of brings us full circle to where we uh, started uh, in the sense of life is so much different now as you said the world is so much different now whether it's in schools whether it's corporations uh public areas like airports and train and bus terminals we are in a much different world and and all of that has impacted uh safety and security uh this this has been dan extremely fascinating again i say it all the time one of those issues that i can just sit and talk about for hours with you but i think you know our listeners would drop off uh, long before the end of that. Uh, is there any other uh, takeaway that you want to leave the listeners uh, with in terms of uh, threat assessments, workplace safety, workplace violence, and, and what you and Margulis Healy have been focusing on? Yeah, just a couple of quick notes. Uh, one is there's what we call the tragic trio, the three things where we find organizations, we kind of consider them the root of organizational failure, and that's communication, organization, and leadership. And in an emergency, in a crisis, or workplace violence situation, or even just a, a routine technological disaster, you have to know how you're going to communicate. You must be organized. And at the end of the day, leadership has to be there. And Mike, that's not always going to be the person with the highest name on the org chart that leads you through that crisis. So you should know who you are as an organization, who your leaders are, and who's going to be able to follow them. Really critical. And I, I would say to all of your listeners, uh, if you're not aware of your company's plans to address these types of situations or that there are even less comprehensive plans than we've talked about in this, in this general overview, it's time to make some corrections. Whether you're a leader in your organizational role and you have to develop it, whether you're an employee and you're concerned about your own safety and security, you need to then communicate inside the company and say, I think it's time for us to do this because it's really critical to us and, and I want it. No, uh, terrific advice, and uh, it's an, it's a new world, whether uh, COVID nineteen uh, related or not. It's it's a new world. So Dan Pascal from Margulis Healy, an affiliate of Cozen O'Connor, uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. This has really been uh, insightful. Thank you, Mike. Stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. That was really insightful, and as I said. This is certainly an issue that we can spend so much more time on, and we certainly will as we bring Dan back on to a future episode. Until the next time, 
Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the podcast, and I hope all of your labor is productive.